Well, I hope to discover that Daniel Burgess is my forefather. It's a possibility because my great-grandfather was a Burgess. But Daniel Burgess was an exceedingly famous English Presbyterian preacher in the 17th and 18th century. His fame arose because he was exuberant and animated in the pulpit, because his sermons were convincing and convicting and compelling. That apparently was something new to London pulpits in that day, where, quote-unquote, dry dignity, dry dignity, was held as a virtue, and it was exacted by the Anglican Church from its ministers. In fact, one Anglican priest led a mob of people to the church of the ebullient Burgess, where they smashed all the windows, gutted the building, and used the pulpit and furnishings to build a bonfire. Now, should it be true that I am related to Burgess, I promise never to attempt to get an Anglican excited about the things of the Lord. That was a joke. Sort of. <laughs> Any Anglicans here? You forgive me? Anyway, Daniel Burgess, this is what he said. Very near the end of his life when uh, sickness was in, inhibiting his ability to do the good work of the ministry, he said, if I must be idle, I had rather be idle under the ground than idle above the ground. If I must be idle, I had rather be idle under the ground than above the ground. Would that that were true of every follower of Christ, that all of us would embrace that attitude, that we would continue to, to work, to continue to produce fruit, to do good works as long as God gives life to our bodies. Martin Luther writes, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. To be full and idle is the greatest plague on earth. It is the trouble from where all other plagues come. It's true, isn't it? That God has graced you and me, almost all of us here, with opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And resource after resource after resource and, and conference after conference after conference to be full of his truth, full of his word. But to be full of his truth and do nothing with it, to be idle or to be self-absorbed is truly a plague for our souls because idleness is not that for which we were created. We were not created to do no thing. We were created to do good things. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We, you and I, must be full of good works as long as the Lord gives us life and strength. 
That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we return once again to John chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 15. And when you found your place there, if you would stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 5, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask Whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. Thank you for these verses that are now so familiar to us through our many weeks' study of them. Bless us once again, Lord, with new understanding, with new insight into your truth into your person, Lord Jesus, and continue to grow us and change us and transform us. Particularly, we pray, Lord, that you would make us people eager to do good works in this world, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. If you were here last week, we saw that like Lowe's and Home Depot, wherever God establishes his truth, quickly behind and in close proximity to, Satan seeks to establish his lie. Not in its ugliness, not in its deformity, not in a way that enables one to easily discern the distortion and the destruction and the death that Satan's lies always bring. But no, instead he he disguises the lie. He veils it as he disguises himself as an angel of light. God's truth that we've seen over these last several weeks is that we repent, you and I, all people that we turn away from sin and that we turn to Christ. And that when we have turned to Christ, here he is before us. And forever after, we look through every person and every situation through the person of Christ. And by his presence with us, we endeavor every day after new and fresh obedience. New obedience, fresh obedience in Christ, i.e. producing fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what Jesus is calling these disciples that he is called to himself. He's calling this, them to this in the upper room when he tells them on the last night of his life, produce fruit, more fruit, much fruit. Now that's the truth. Satan attempts to plant his lie, as we saw. And the lie of Satan is that we should do penance. So God's truth, repent, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Satan's lie, do penance. Work hard to earn your salvation. Labor on 
to make sure that you have a place in heaven. Let me just ask you again to never believe that lie. That you can find nowhere in Scripture. Christ alone has done all that needs to be done on the cross to secure and ensure the salvation of all who repent and turn to him in faith. You are justified. I am justified. We are made right before God through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, to quote, quote Martin Luther, he said, Every week, every week, I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. So before we move on this morning, don't forget, Jesus paid it all. We already sang it. Let's say it together, can't we? Jesus paid it all. One more time. Jesus paid it all. What a wonderful thing to hear God's people proclaiming that truth. This morning, I'm going to expose one more lie. And I call this lie the lie of the filthy rags. The lie of the filthy rags. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. Unclean. Filthy rags, shriveled up, sin-swept. These are the words that we hear in this verse. The lie then attempts to get us to believe that you and I can do nothing good. That you and I can do nothing to please God. So why do anything at all? It's a lie that has produced myriad idle Christians. It's a lie that is particularly effective and finds a happy home in the hearts of good Protestants who believe, rightly so, and boldly proclaim the five solas, the five onlys, the five alones, sola scriptura. Scripture is the inspired word of God and scripture alone is an errant and sufficient and the final authority for our lives. Solus Christus, Christ alone can save sinners. Sola fide, by faith alone we are saved. Sola gratia, our salvation, yours and mine from beginning to end, is all by the grace of God. And all of this good news is soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. We who believe this are susceptible to the lie of the filthy rags. The lie is effective also. Among those who love to sing, nothing in my hand I bring. What? Simply to the cross I cling. Right? We think the empty-handed Christian is the most noble Christian of all. The lie is effective among those who quote along with the Apostle Paul, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. So here's the thing. Satan wants us to believe that since nothing good dwells in us, that we can do no 
good thing. The lie of Satan is that since we can do nothing to earn our salvation, well then, we should do nothing at all. That is a lie. One commentator writes, Somewhere along the way we have begun to believe that our pride is best held in check and God's grace is most magnified when we denigrate all our efforts and all our labors as merely filthy rags in the sight of God. But listen, here's why that lie cannot be true. Christ proclaims that he empowers our work. Look in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Look in verse 5. Jesus says it again. I am the vine. He is the source of power. How can what Jesus empowers be worthless or filthy? By his own proclamation, Jesus says that with his power, we can do things. Verse 5. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit. By the proclamation of Christ again in verse 5, apart from him, we can do no thing. So listen, what is inspired by God, what's empowered by Christ, cannot be worthless before God. What's generated by the Holy Spirit is not filthy or worthless before God. I read it earlier. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are generated. We have our genesis, our beginning in this world by the Spirit of God for good works so that we can be his hands and his feet in this world. Are our works, yours and mine, tainted by sin? Yes, always. But that's the way it is with humans in this fallen world. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, says this. The person of believers being accepted, accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in Christ. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. For now, our works are tainted, but still good and pleasing when done for through and to Christ. Scripture is replete with God's call to God's people to do good works. Jesus did them himself. He said in John 10, I have shown you many good works from the Father. To the crowd who had gathered to listen to him teach on the side of the mountain, He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Titus was the Apostle Paul's young protege 
and co-laborer. Paul left him behind in Crete so that he could organize and establish the church there so that he could appoint elders in every town. Apparently, according to the Apostle Paul, good works must be in the DNA of every church from the very beginning. These are the instructions that Paul gives to Titus. Chapter 2, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. He tells Titus later in chapter 2, Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for, guess what? Guess what? Good works. In chapter 3, Paul's, Paul puts the truth of justification right beside the truth of doing good works. Listen to this in chapter 3. God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So here are the solas, right? Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to, guess what? Guess what? Good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And finally, in chapter 3, he says to Titus, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. The author of Hebrews writes, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. The apostle Peter writes in his first letter, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There it is. Jesus did them. He commands good works. The author of Hebrews, the apostles Peter and Paul, they all bear down on the same truth. God's sons and daughters must do good works in this world. How our enemy would love it if God's people, you and I, did nothing in this world and believed that that's what pleased our Heavenly Father and that we have honored Him by doing nothing. Or that He would rejoice somehow that one He is saved by His grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone would appear before Him with empty hands. Here, Lord, here's what I've done with the life that you have reclaimed and redeemed and restored and renovated. Look, nothing. I felt like I was living in a God-given illustration yesterday. Remember yesterday? Throughout the day, the wind blew unceasingly with such power. And I will say, with, with majesty. Did you go out? Did you hear it? The windows in my office next door 
shook and rattled, doors slammed, gates banged, things swirled in the air. You could see all around the effects of the power of the wind. It's little wonder, I thought, throughout the day that in Scripture the Spirit of God is associated with wind, with the breath of God, with the work of God. That power that comes to us as we are connected to and abide in Christ, the true vine. Power, power to do good works. That power stands in stark relief to idleness, does it not? Again, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Imagine the darkness that would overcome the world if we did not let our light shine and bring glory to our Father through our good works. Last week, LifeWay Research released a survey that found that Christian millennials, here's some, something nice about millennials for a change. Is that good news? <laughs> we never say anything good about y'all. Anyway, he, he, here it goes. Uh, where was it? Yeah, that Christian millennials are three times more likely than their non-Christian counterparts to give money to both religious and non-religious charities. The study found that nearly 60% of respondents try to purchase from companies that act in Christ-honoring ways. In discussing the results, LifeWay CEOs stated Christians are much more active in donating their finances and no less active in trying to do good with their spending. Now look, if you take that giving away and the light that it brings to the world, very quickly, darkness will invade that place and fill the vacuum left by the absence of light. And that's just one example. And I don't intend to belittle this good truth of doing good works by attempting to catalog for all of us what is a good work and what is not a good work. You know where that catalog is going to come from? That catalog is going to come from your own heart that's constantly repenting before the Lord. Your heart that Christ has transformed through faith and by His grace. That catalog is going to come as you devote yourself to the Scriptures and the presence of Christ. That's where the catalog will come. If I were to list the common good works, feeding the poor, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, and you happen not to have contact with any of those kinds of people during the week or during the month or even during the year, you might not ever get around to doing a good work. But if you are spending time in the presence of Jesus through prayer and through His Word, he is going to show you what good work to do. What fruit you should bear in keeping with repentance. Because you know what? He knows 
where you live. He knows where I live. He placed you there. He placed me there. He knows who you encounter every day. He placed those people around you and he put you in their midst. He knows their needs. He knows your gifts. He gave them to you. The fruit of repentance means that you look at those people, at those situations through Jesus, and he'll show you what good works you can do. That's not to say that you will not do those other things, feeding the poor, those beautiful things. It's only to say that those are not the only good works that you and I are called to do. God will show you what it means to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. And so I'm going to close now with these two passages of Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Not idleness, fruitful labor. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, so that in me you may have ample cause to give glory in Christ Jesus. I think that's Paul's way of saying, if I must be idle, I had rather be idle under the ground than idle above the ground. Paul wants to keep on living just so that he can keep on working among people, keep on bearing fruit for Christ, keep on bringing glory to Christ. Why do you want to keep on living? And finally, Hebrews 13, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to show, to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Pleasing to God. Our good works done in this world for Him, through Him, and back to Him are not filthy rags. They are pleasing to God. Let's remind each other to do them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would enable us to do good works for all the right reasons. Not to earn the love and the favor and the acceptance that you have already given us in Jesus. But instead, to be your hands and feet in this world. To do good things that reflect your love and your grace, and your mercy, and your care for those who are created in your image. Make us eager, Lord, to work hard in this life as long as you give us life for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.